I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. From the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We pray the true and living God will be with you and us tonight as we talk. Who are you, gorgeous? I'm Delaney. Delaney McCraney. Delaney McCraney. Now, listen, Delaney has an oldest sister named Mallory, and she's the one who does all in his words, and then a middle sister named Cassidy. And Cassie does all the graphics, emails, films, everything like that. But Delaney here, Delaney is a senior in college at Point Loma University. She's a four-year uh, volleyball player. And unlike her father, she has tremendous academic success, especially in the hard sciences. But the most amazing fact about Delaney is that she has a humility and a love for the Lord uh, a servant's heart. Do you know why Delaney is here with me this week? Well, it's so that we can get to know each other better. Um, when she was 10 years old, I entered into ministry full time. And when she was 12, I started traveling up to Utah for uh, four days, three or four days, sometimes more out of the week. And um, I was absent from much of her, most of her teenage life, in fact, all of it, except for the days that I was in. And when I was in town, I was, I was busy. And of my three daughters, she lost out on a dad uh, in her teen years. And so we have recognized lately that we have, a, have had a slight disconnect between the two of us um, as a result. But God stepped in as her father. And he took over in my absence. And of course, he does a perfect and fantastic job protecting uh, Delaney and all the rest of my family. So I say this because I want you to know when you walk from Mormonism or you walk from a religion that has you bound and you seek to follow the Lord with all your heart and you worry about things, let God take the reins. Let him take control. And then he, he, he makes things up and he helps things go along while you're trying. I just want to publicly thank my young one here for her sacrifice of her teen years and not knowing her dad like her older sisters uh, did. But I am so grateful and I love her so much. And I'm grateful to have been able to spend time with her this week and, and other times so we can start building that relationship that that hasn't completely been there uh, through the last 10 years. I love you, baby. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We got a lot to talk about, so with that, let's get right to prayer. Father, we thank you, worship you, are grateful for all that you do for us. And uh, we recognize your hand, and if we fail to, forgive us. Help us to see you in all things. May your spirit be with us tonight, wherever we may be, as we discuss these things and move into them quickly and heavily. In Jesus' name, amen. To make things really simple, the Bible speaks of two resurrections. Two resurrections. The first is called the resurrection of the just. The second is called the resurrection of the damned, okay? Uh, once the first resurrection is complete, there will follow that second resurrection or the resurrection of the damned. 
Now, many believers have been waiting for Jesus to return to initiate the first resurrection. I would suggest that they do this mistakenly because he is the first fruits of the, res of the first resurrection. And he initiated that first resurrection when he rose from the grave, okay? That way he was the first fruits of the first resurrection. Shortly thereafter, we read that others rose from the grave. And so it was Jesus rising from the dead that ignited, so to speak, the first resurrection. We'll refer to his resurrection as the first fruits or the first phase, the first phase of the first resurrection. What most Christians are waiting for is the second phase of the first resurrection, which scripture says will occur when Jesus returns, okay? And so our question tonight, and has been last week, tonight, next week, is when does the Bible say Jesus will return? Now, um, it's not when Sean McCraney says he will return, and it's not when John MacArthur or anybody else, when does the Bible say Jesus would return? I wanna thank my pastor friend, Glenn Hill, out in North Carolina, for showing me from the Bible what it says. Now, when it comes to teaching the Bible, there's an approach that says, first, you have to observe what you're reading, and then you interpret what you've read, and then you give it application to your life, okay? You observe, you interpret, you apply. It's a great model to use when teaching the word. Observing, we, when we read the scripture, we should ask, who's the writer? Where is he writing from? What's he writing to? Who's his audience? Why is he writing to them? What is the surrounding situation of why he is writing, the context? What is occurring in the secular world around the time that the word is being written? And perhaps most importantly, what would the words being written mean to the recipients of it at that time? Let me repeat that last one. What would the words being written to the church at Rome, to the church at Corinth, to the believers at Galatia, what would those words mean to the recipients at that time? Often we carry around the idea that the New Testament was written to believers today, 2,000 years later, or in 1800, or in, or in the year 1100, or something like that. Um, but the New Testament uh, was not written to us today primarily, or firstly, it has maybe a secondary uh, relation to us today spiritually, but the New Testament were letters, epistles, written to the people at that time in the local churches. So many people today see the New Testament as written to people who didn't really understand what was being said. They say, well, when they got the letters, they couldn't understand that stuff. And so we now get it and we understand it retroactively. Like when the apostles heard that Jesus said he was gonna return, they didn't understand what that meant. And so they talked as if it was gonna be at any time, but they didn't really get it. And now we can see that we do. Let me tell you, it's baloney. They understood exactly what things meant. These apostles are the ones who wrote the epistles. They better have understood what Jesus meant. They better have understood what the Holy Spirit was saying. In other words, the New Testament letters were written first to the believers of that day, encouraging and instructing them first, which we pointed out last week in talking about Revelation. Therefore, the primary application was to them and their physical needs, their understanding, their Christian walk, and secondarily, it has application to future generations like ours, and I would add that the application is spiritual. So if we read the New Testament in any other way, we are likely to misinterpret what is being said and then make the mistake of thinking the text has application to our time right now in ways that it doesn't. So admittedly, the word of God is the living word. And while I'm convinced that even though the purposes for the passages written way back then don't have the same application in our day, for instance, when Paul talks about widows or women not speaking in the church or if you could braid your hair or not and some of those things, I do believe that there is a tremendous, even equal spiritual significance when we study the word now. For example, Jesus employs a lot of imagery that he borrows from agrestic communities. 
from farmlands and things. And that's why he's always talking about illustrations using planting and sowing and reaping and harvesting. To a city dweller, this imagery may not carry the same weight. Uh, of course, then again, it might add some other insights to the city dweller that an agrarian reader would, uh, would uh, never consider, vice versa. This is just one of the beauties of the word being a living word. We read it today, 2,000 years later, and yet we can still, even as city dwellers, understand many of the things that he was talking about. My point then is not that we lose benefit because we're not part of that original audience. The word is living. But when it comes to theology and things like, when does the Bible say Jesus should return? We have to include our examination of as many critical bits of information as possible in order to really comprehend what he said to them, to whom, why, context, etc. So what we're gonna do is break our study down of the question, when does the Bible say Jesus should return according to the speakers of the Bible? We started last week with Revelation, John and the Isle of Patmos. Tonight, we're going to go to what Jesus himself said about his return. Tonight's gonna be part one of what Jesus said himself. Next week and the following week, part two and three. After that, we will go to the apostles, Peter, James, John, uh, Paul, and we will look at what they said in, in, in G, about Jesus' return. And as I throw all of this at you, I can guarantee you one question. I can't tell you if he's gonna come again, but I can guarantee you, if you watch all of these, you will say, he came back in 70 AD. That was absolutely apparent in scripture according to the Bible. If he's gonna come again, if the world's gonna be destroyed later, I can't say, you know, it, it, you know, possibly, I don't know. But we will show that the Bible teaches clearly that when, he, when he, it says he would come again, okay? So, and um, we'll begin by examining the big discourse where the Lord gives his answer to when he's gonna come again. And it's found in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and, and Luke chapter 21. I'm gonna use Matthew 24 as our narrative, and I will pull from Luke and Mark and the things they add as we talk about it over the next two weeks. Now, Matthew 24 takes place when the Lord and his disciples, actually there's four of them, it's, it's uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Mark tells us that, it's not all the disciples, go to the Mount of Olives, and they're sitting up there, and, uh, and they wanna know about his return. And that is the setting for all of Matthew 24. But in order to get a real good understanding of why 24 is there and what happens, we have to read or understand what happened before, and you gotta go all the way to Matthew 21, okay? so. In Matthew 21, this is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He rides on a donkey that has never been ridden before. They're waving palm branches. They're throwing their clothes in the street before him, and they're shouting, Hosanna to the highest. They're knowing that the king has come. I believe they thought he was going to be a literal king, and not, uh, he, not that he was going to go and die. Well, after entering into the city of David on that, on that colt, uh, he went straight to the temple. Okay? And when he gets there, what does he do? He tosses the money changers out. He flips over the tables. And uh, this was incendiary behavior. I mean, uh, interesting that what he did those things right before he was going to be crucified. The money changers out, the money tables over. He is ticked. All right. I believe he did it to stoke the fires of evil that burned within those religious leaders at that time. I believe he was throwing gasoline on the fuel that was already there saying, we need him dead, okay? Could be wrong. After he does that, he goes to Bethany, not far away, and he stays the night. He comes back and he enters in from Bethany into Jerusalem, what does he see? He sees a leafy, beautiful fig tree, okay? And from a distance, it had the appearance of bearing a lot of fruit. So Jesus and his disciples walk towards this fig tree and discover there's no fruit on this. And so Jesus curses the fig tree 
and immediately it says it begins to wither and the disciples were amazed saying, look how quickly this thing is dying. It's a picture of the nation of Israel. It's a picture of a very outwardly fruitful looking tree that bears no fruit at all. And Jesus cursed it and we have a picture in that happening. From there, Jesus returns to the Temple Mount. And what does he do? He directly talks to the Pharisees on the Temple Mount. And this composes much of what's in Matthew 21, 22, and 23. Matthew 23 especially. And it, he is throwing down imprecations on these guys. I mean, these, this is the woe chapter. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. I mean, he throws down on them like no other. He calls them hypocrites, a generation of vipers, blind guides, serpents, and heaps upon them a bunch of other imprecations and prophecies about what's gonna happen to them. And all through these uh, chapters, Jesus is essentially telling them, you're done for. You are dead meat. That's what he's telling them. Chapter 23 ends with Jesus saying this to those Pharisees and scribes, ready? That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things, and he's talking to these Pharisees, shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathered her chickens uh, and under her wings, but you would not. Behold, your house has left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Unquestionably, when Jesus says, your house is made left unto you desolate, the house was not only talking about the temple, but it was talking about everything that was represented in the nation of Israel. Their culture there in Jerusalem, their genealogies were gonna be destroyed completely, their land, their nation, their priesthood, their way of life, all of it left desolate was his promise to them. And this rehearsal brings us to chapter 24, the big chapter. You ready? So let's turn to it and see what happens next. Verse 1, and Jesus went out. That means from calling these guys out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. The Lord had just laid out these horrible predictions against the nation of Israel. And for some reason, as he's exiting the temple grounds, his disciples say, Jesus, look at this beautiful building. Now, maybe they were trying to change the subject, you know, like, hey, we believe in everything you said, but look at this beautiful temple. You know, how is this gonna happen? Or maybe they were just trying to take the pressure off and, you know, kind of bring in something that would lighten the mood. We don't know. Whatever reason, verse two, Jesus says unto them, see ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, now remember what he just had just done, just got finished saying, verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down, okay? So in my opinion, this must have been really hard for the disciples to hear. Um, Jesus was getting really dismal and really disparaging toward everything around them at this time. From outside the temple, they traveled to the Mount of Olives. And that would have given them this beautiful view over the whole city of Jerusalem. And there, Peter, James, John, Andrew, and Jesus sat. And I would bet they were pretty solemn after Jesus had said all this. When they started traveling with Jesus, it seems like it was probably pretty fun. And I, I, mean, I don't mean that necessarily in a literal sense. He was changing water into wine at a wedding party, his first miracle, healing people right and left. The masses were coming. When they needed food, he reproduced it. Hey, we need food, here's fish, here's bread. When their family members got sick, he healed them. But in the past few days, he ripped the temple thieves apart. He turned over the table. He cursed a beautiful fig tree, which immediately withered. He threw down some really ugly warnings to the Jewish leaders 
of whom the disciples at this point were still terrified. And now he said the Temple Mount, which was a marvel to them, was gonna be thrown down to the point where there would not be one stone left upon another. Okay, the party was ending, folks. And so I'm guessing the mood was probably somber. Verse three, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately to Jesus and they essentially asked the Lord three questions. You ready? Now remember, all that has happened and all that Jesus has said and the tone he has been taking up to this point because these are the very things that created the questions in Peter, James, John, and Andrew when they came to him on the Mount of Olives. It's all that they had seen and now they've come to him with three questions and this is what they are. Tell us, when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world, end quote. Three questions all lined up they give to Jesus as he's sitting there. Now, we're seeking to know mostly about that second question. And what is the sign of thy coming? Or when does the Bible say Jesus will come back? But in order to get to it, we have to examine questions one and three as well. I am of the opinion that these questions are all interrelated. In fact, I believe they are all asking for the same answer to the same type of question, when? When will these things be? When will be your coming? And when will be the end of the world is how the King James translates it. Some people believe the disciples were asking different questions about different topics. I disagree. I think the succession of them and the context surrounding when they were being asked proves direct correlation between those three questions. Now listen closely. The disciples knew that in the Old Testament, when God would bring judgment upon a nation, the prophets often spoke of him as having come down and executed wrath and judgment upon them. Those, those disciples knew that. And so they probably tied in Jesus' return with the associated prophecies of judgment falling upon the nation and the end of, listen, their world, not the end of the world. And I'll explain that in a second. So the four disciples asked the Lord three questions that are interrelated in my opinion. Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now hang with me here. They had heard Jesus say the nation would be laid desolate and that the grand temple would be toppled to the ground and that this would be the end of their world and that it would happen in this generation. He said all of that. When disciples asked Jesus in the King James, when will be the end of the world? This is what they were asking. When will all of this happen which will put an end of the world as we know it? That will put an end to the age that we live in. That is what they were asking. I'm gonna prove it in a second. I think we can understand this on some level. That phrase, a country music song, guy gets on, yeah, I lost my wife today, came home, my dog bit me on the leg and, and there was no food in the cupboard and they foreclosed on my house. And then the song says, it's the end of my world. That's, that's exactly what they were asking him then. When is gonna be the end of this world? And the reason we know this is the disciples wanted to know of the Lord, what, have you, what you have described to us, Lord, when is that gonna happen? not when is the end of the earth, okay? That's how the King James writes it. They put world there. It does not mean that. If they were asking, Lord, and when is the end of the earth, the world, the Greek would say cosmos. And when will be the end of the cosmos, the world? But the, the word is not cosmos there. It's a different word. Um, Instead, they ask him, when is the end of the age? The word is aeon. And it means when will be the end of this age that we are in, which has a beginning and an end, a period of time. All right? 
the end when all things Jewish as they knew it would be left desolate, the end when the temple would be brought down, when judgment will fall upon the nation, when will be the end of this age? And that's what the Greek says, aeon, not cosmos, which means world. My friends, Luke, uh, Matthew 24 and Mark and Luke is Jesus' answer to these specific questions. Matthew 24, if and when we are able to recognize this, we will take a giant step in embracing a clearer eschatological picture of things and a clearer picture of the reason for church and of being Christian today, and we will be equipped to set aside end-time malarkey that churches have been pushing and selling books and movies on forever. It's not contextually understood or taught. Jesus' words to the disciples, if we accept that he was born in 3 or 4 BC, were spoken around 30 AD. Got that? 30 AD, he says this to his disciples. He says it to the Jews. This generation will not pass. The accepted biblical length for a generation in the Bible is 40 years. He speaks it to the Jews, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He says, this generation will not pass. This is around 70, uh, this is around 30 AD. A generation is 40 years. That's 70 AD, and we know from history what happened then. So take 30 AD, when Jesus promised that all of these things will happen within this generation, okay? And both uh, to the Jews in the temple and to the disciples, he says this. All of this will happen in this generation. It, uh, 40 years to 30 AD would be 70 AD, a most important date in the annals of biblical history because it was 70 AD that the Roman army under Titus accomplished what we will read here in Matthew 24. That's what Jesus is gonna say is coming, what he's describing in Matthew 24 from his own mouth. As an aside, we also note that in the Old Testament, Micah prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem, but I won't go into that. That's found in Micah 3.12. All right, to show God's hand move this destruction upon Jerusalem, we read in Flavius Josephus's The Wars of the Jews that the Roman general Titus actually did not want to destroy the temple. He came in and he thought it was too magnificent of an edifice to destroy, and if they kept it, it would be a sign of the greatness of the Roman Empire. So he didn't want it destroyed. But the soldiers, one of the soldiers ignorantly threw a flaming firebrand into the window of the temple, into one of the windows, and caught it on fire, and it was ablaze. And Josephus says that when General Titus, the Roman general, got word of the fire, quote, he rose up in great haste and ran to the holy house in order to stop the fire, put a stop to it, and gave orders with a loud voice and with his right hand gave signals for the soldiers to stop the fire, but the normally disciplined Roman soldiers went wild and pushed to see the whole thing destroyed by fire first. This was God's judgment upon the people and city, not Rome's. In fact, Josephus, in Essential Writings, page 365, wrote this. As Titus entered the city, September 26, AD 70, he was astonished at its strength, and especially the towers, speaking of the temple, which the tyrants had abandoned. Indeed, when he saw how high and massive they were and the size of each huge block, he exclaimed, surely God was with us in the war who brought the Jews down from their strongholds for what could hand or engine do against these towers. Even Roman uh, Titus said it's God who allowed this to happen. Now, we can choose to believe that what Jesus said to his disciples and the Jews about all these things would happen in this generation, that he was right, and what happened in 70 AD was the fulfillment of it, or we can side with a number of believers today who contend that all the things that he said have not happened and Jesus was wrong, that some Christians have postulated Jesus didn't know, or the apostles misunderstood, and therefore, we are still waiting for all of it to happen, okay? Let's go back to Matthew 24. Now, Christians who believe that what Jesus has been describing has not yet happened, we're gonna call them futurists. They use Matthew 24 constantly to describe signs in our day and age. 
Frankly, it's easy to read into them and see signs if you want. But let's go through, go through them and see how they really apply to our day or to events of 70 AD, which is it? In our first run through, I want you to take note of who Jesus is directing his descriptive words to. If these words were prophesied by our Lord and King for a date in our age, why didn't he make this clear? Instead, he and the apostles give plenty of indications he was speaking first to them of their generation and their time. So let's read, and we're just gonna read verses uh, uh, three through 14 in Matthew. Three through 14, technical staff. You ready? And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world, the King James translated. The three questions, Jesus replied, take heed first, verse four, that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end of the age is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure until the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nation. And then shall the end come. So we're gonna stop at 14 and we'll come back and finish uh, the rest of it next week, all right? So let me go through 14 and talk about it. There's a lot here I know and we'll cover the remainder. Um, try to remember that when the Jews write, they use hyperbole. They exaggerate, they use illustrations and comparisons to convey what they're trying to say, but it doesn't mean literalness. For example, in Romans 1.8, Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Paul says that in Romans. Does this mean their faith was spoken of in Logan, Utah? Catalina Island? The people living at the base of Mount Shasta, the Indians? Was their faith spoken of then? It says the whole world there, or was that Jewish Hebrew hyperbole that they used to describe, hey, your faith is very, very impressive. You have to read them that way, okay? I think he's probably talking about the established Roman Empire that their faith was talking of. Folks, literalists love to emphasize lines like the whole world, and to say it means the whole world, but often their assumptions are incorrect. Again, which is why we try to ask all those questions I gave you at the beginning. Who's speaking? What's the context? What are they saying, okay? And one more thing. Many people today, thanks to the pre-trib thing that was created by Darby in 1830, embraced by Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, Chuck Smith, my mentor, they embraced that stuff of Darby in 1830, and people today believe that the end is gonna be a, a nuclear holocaust, and that we are still waiting for the Antichrist to pop up on the scene. And all this stuff they keep fervently teaching, it's coming, and, and we see it today, you, you'd think I'm nuts to teach this because of what's happening in the Middle East. The signs are there, the Ebola virus broke out. This stuff has been happening. It's been happening for 2,000 years. I am not saying the, the scripture is wrong, the scripture is right. Jesus did say he would return, but I think it's at a different time than when we think. So let's go back and look at verses four, six through 14 before we wrap it up. Jesus says at verse six, and you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. The rumors of wars and difficulties for Jerusalem were rampant in and around the decade prior to 70 AD. All reasonable precursors of inevitable destruction, war, rumors of war, they lived with it for a decade before the Romans came in and finished them off. Jesus tells these men plainly, see that you, my disciples, be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation 
shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence, earthquakes in diverse places. We have a recorded history of all these terrors existing prior to the destruction of Israel, uh, of uh, Jerusalem. Even major devastating earthquakes happening prior to 70 AD. Most futurists glom on to the line, nations will rise against nation. They'll say that didn't happen in 70 AD. And they'll say that's why it speaks of a future day. But the thing is, the Greek word for the King James, that the King James translated into nations, is ethnos. From that, we get the word ethnicities. And so we could read it uh, better, a description of this verse, ethnicities shall rise up against ethnicities, ethnos, rather than nations against nations. All you got to do is read the Greek and you'll see what the, what the word origin means. Why the King James put nations there when it means ethnicities, and then it makes sense, Gentiles and Romans and Jews, ethnicities, Greeks, rising up against each other in that time? That makes sense. In verse 8, Jesus said, all these are the beginning of sorrows. See how mercifully he's describing to his apostles the chronology for them to be aware of and to be looking for a real one with a real date to that generation. Verse 9, and they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and ye shall be hated of all nations. Again, that's ethnos, ethnicities, for my name's sake. The Romans, as well as other ethnicities, certainly hated the Jews in Jerusalem, to put it mildly, especially the apostles. Verse 12, uh, 10 through 12, are all validated, 10 through 12, by Josephus as conditions existing in Jerusalem prior to 70 AD. As the Jews turned on each other, many false Christs rose and many in the, of the Christian elect were deceived. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews was written to the Jewish converts in Christianity to say, hang on to your faith. The end is shortly coming. Don't apostatize. We know times are tough. That's why the book was written, to hang on to the end, which was shortly coming. So this is what 10, 11, 12 say. Jesus says, and then many shall be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And Jesus then gives them each a promise here in verse 13. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. In my opinion, this is speaking of being saved from the physical destruction that was coming. As legend has it, not one Christian was killed in the destruction of, it's a legend, uh, in the destruction of Jerusalem, but escaped or was raptured, either one. Verse 14 is thought to be the crowning glory verse for futurists. This is the verse that puts it, it to bed. You ready? It says, and this gospel of the kingdom, Jesus says, shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Then shall the end come. Futurists hang their hats on this. And they say, Had, did the gospel go to the entire world? The word for world there is cosmos. Did it go out to the entire world by then? No, it didn't, Sean McCraney. So we know that it has to still go to the entire world before the end will come. Okay, that's what they say, right? Instead of cosmos, uh, uh, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world. I, I'm sorry, I said it was cosmos. It's not. It's a completely different word. The word is oikumene, and oikumene means and the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to this area, to this land, to the Roman Empire possibly, but not cosmos. It's, it's oikumenia, to the land, to the area. So we could read 14 like this, and the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the land for a witness unto all ethnicities, not nations, and he tells his apostles there, then shall the end come. And we're gonna finish up next week, or try to finish up what he continues to say with greater and greater detail, and we'll show you how it fits into what was happening at that time. So let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. And um, while you're waiting, take a look at this.
We had a call last week from Robert in Peachtree, Georgia, Peachtree City. He asked two questions. Who has authority, authority in the church? And what does biblical unity really look like? And I thought they were really good questions. And, uh, and so I prepared something really quickly uh, for if there's gonna be calls and if, uh, before we go to emails. Let me plainly articulate some points that have been misunderstood of late. Please just try to listen if possible with my rhetoric. But from the beginning of the ministry, you know, if you followed it, that we have always said that the LDS need to know Christ through spiritual rebirth, irrespective of their religious affiliation. Now, we do tell them you ought to leave and we do tell them go and get out and abandon ship and all that. But the, the Born Again Mormon book was all about come to know Jesus and let him tell you and decide what you wanna do. In other words, we have always, always, always maintained that LDS people could be considered as much of a Christian as anyone else in any other denomination so long as they have been individually born again. And then we leave what they do up to God and typically they leave, okay? This, of course, caused some very narrow believers to attack the heck out of us early on. We maintain the stance today. Of course, we have issue with Mormonism, and Mormonism we will continue to fight, and we will continue to bring out the difficulties with their present-day doctrine and practice, but it's at the individual subjective level where Christianity lies. Let me repeat that. Christianity lies at the individual subjective level. That means, let's say Jesus was to come back after everything I just said, and he stands above the earth in the clouds. That means we're gonna have some people who are in the Mormon church come up if we're talking about a rapture, and we're gonna have people in the Catholic, some people in the Catholic, and we're gonna have some people in Calvary Chapel, and we're gonna have some people at campus, and we're gonna have some Baptist people come up, and we're gonna have people, people, individuals come up, not the churches. Because Jesus says the churches are full of, of, of good and bad. They're full of bad fish and good fish. So none of the church's institutions, it's a subjective religion, okay? So what has changed in the ministry, which is in me, is because I now throw all brick and mortar religious institutions into the same pot with Mormonism. I throw all of them, even campus, all of them into the same thing. Uh, having come to see that organized and institutionalized religions have no right to insert themselves in between an individual and God in any manner whatsoever. Not in demands, not in calling people in to give an account for their lives, not in judgment for people who have been divorced or who are homosexual, and not to make people pay tithes or participate in programs and to make them feel like that's incumbent upon their salvation. None of those things, including doctrine. Christianity is a holy subjective relationship and any organized gathering of believers exists to support each other, teach, encourage, and search for God rather than to monitor police and demand intellectual or physical conformity. All right? All that stuff in the brick and mortar churches, when it comes down to trying to influence authority or control, is just men and women playing church. That's all it is. Because in the end, it's the individual's subjective relationship to God based on faith and the love that they exude that will mean salvation or not. Not the fact that somebody went to a brick and mortar church every day of their life, paid tithes every week, dressed appropriately, didn't drink or smoke, and it, that, that means nothing, nothing at all. So I throw all the brick and mortar churches into the same bat. We all go before God alone. We are not gonna have, not me, not you, will not have a pastor, a priest, a pope, or a prophet go with us before God and say, here we are, I, I listened, I, listened. I took his counsel, Lolo. <laughs> This man's counsel, we're gonna say, he's gonna say, God, I believed in you. He'll look at our heart. 
So the church's job is to teach the word, provide encouragement, let everyone alone, and then go out for them individually to pursue what it means to be a Christian. I would suggest it's about time that pastors learn to walk by the faith they tell their congregants to walk by. You know, have faith, brothers. Have faith, sisters. And help us with our campaign. Yet we need 50 people to sign up today. Have faith. The Lord will care for your needs. But pay your tithes to me. I suggest the pastors start relying on their own words. Seeing if that God will really help them out. Instead of taking it into their own hands and building their empires. In a perfect world, American Christianity ought to deconstruct. Eliminate plain church sell off the high overhead, uh, rent space for the days they need to gather together, teach the word, pray, go home, and let people figure out the direct relationship they have with God instead of getting in between. So we have a summary of this stuff right here, and we're going to show it to you, and then we're going to go to a phone call in Evanston, Wyoming, and an online question. Go ahead and show the summary. Brother Director, Christianity is a wholly subjective relationship between God and the individual which cannot be defined, dictated, described, or directed by anyone but God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. Organized religion has absolutely no authority, power, efficacy, or right to assert itself, its doctrines, practices, or demands anywhere into this sacred subjective relationship. The modern brick-and-mortar church has a simple threefold purpose to serve emancipated believers by freely teaching the word of God contextually and without bias, to support and encourage individual believers in their respective walk with Christ, and to share the Lord Jesus Christ with other people who have yet to receive him by faith. And just consider, Christians are saved by faith through grace, saved by grace through faith, to love, by suffering as Christ. So there it is. There's the answer to your question when it comes to authority and what unity in the church means. It's a subjective unity of the heart. We have a question online that was delivered thanks to Seth's work. Why don't you translate in Hebrew instead of Greek? Because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It was translated into a book called the Septuagint. And that Septuagint is the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. So you go to the Greek for that. And I, don't, I can read Greek better than I can read Hebrew. And I don't read Greek well at all. The New Testament was entirely translated, written in the Greek. And so that's why I go to the Greek instead of the Hebrew. The Hebrew was really only applicable to parts, mostly all, but parts of the Old Testament. All right, let's go to Christopher in Evansville, Indiana. Christopher, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes. Christopher. Uh, I, um, I just wanted to say something uh, on air in regards to... Uh, uh, the topic of tonight. You're on the air, Christopher. Okay. Um, first of all, I'm I'm Catholic, and uh, I'm a Catholic convert. Well, um, the topic of um, of tonight about the second coming of Jesus, I I believe that it is a future event. I heard I heard what you said, and I I believe that it's possible it could have happened in the past, but I'm sticking to uh, Catholic doctrine that this, we're still waiting for the second coming. Now, with that said, um, as Christians, and I've been told this by a Catholic priest when I asked about this, uh, what should we do in regards to, you know, the end of days? And he said, be the best Christian that you can be Love the Lord with all your heart, and when it happens, it happens. Don't worry about it. That's good advice. And listen, Christopher, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter if somebody is a futurist or, or a preterist or whatever. I'm just giving you my view of it because it does play into the purpose of church today in a spiritual sense. I could be wrong. Admittedly, could be wrong. I see it in this way. You can see it in that. But in the end, your, your priest is correct. In the end, are you ready to die today and have your second coming? Or if he comes back tomorrow, are you ready for that? So, so, the, so the purpose is the same, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, I agree with you, my friend. Hey, thanks for the call, Christopher. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, we have, interesting, I wonder if it's the same guy. Uh, do I still believe anything that is taught in the LDS Church? This is from a Christopher, and uh, who is a Catholic, so it's probably the same guy. 
Uh, oh, I believe in many things that are taught in the LDS church. Uh, of course, I don't believe in a, a lot of their hocus pocus stuff. And, and, uh, but there are many good principles that the LDS teach and there's insights. Uh, I mean, one of them, you know, which will disturb people is Smith said, hey, no creeds. And now they have a bunch of creeds, but he did say I, no creeds. We, we teach men correct principles and let them uh, worship how, where, and what they, what they may. So I agree with that. I don't think they do that, but he saw it that way. He saw those creeds and said they're, they're failing. So I can agree with that, but you know, I think he got caught up in his head and he came up with a bunch of fiction in the temple and all that stuff, no good. But nevertheless, there's things I do agree with. Their, their moral stance on things, sure, why not? All right, let's go to... Um, Doug wants to know if you still believe the church should pray to Jesus. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think you pray to God, you pray to Jesus, uh, you pray to the Father. Jesus taught us to pray to the Father, but he really taught his disciples, his apostles to pray to the Father. All things are in him now, so I don't see any problem with praying to Jesus whatsoever uh, uh, because he's overcome all things and he's our mediator between uh, God and man. So no problem with that. Let's go to Charlie in Salt Lake City. Charlie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Charlie, you're on the air. Thank you. Let me turn it uh, turn it down. Okay. Uh, yes, Sean. Uh, I'll just start out a little bit. I was a little concerned with the rest of uh, the uh, Christian community when you said that you were going to call us out. Um, but calling us out is bringing us to truth, Sean. We really, really have blessing in you and the truth is given to us from the Holy Spirit I mean I've I've been reading the Bible for what six years now and I've seen this the same very laid out tonight you clarified with eccenticity on the world not or the nations it makes it so clear uh, that it is speaking of the Jewish nation Amen. You're right, Charlie. And just hang on to your hat because the next two weeks and after, they're going to blow your mind, I'm telling you. And even John, if you read the epistles of John, does he not tell us who the Antichrists are? Yeah. Why do they keep trying to sell us this theory that the rapture and all the seven-year trips and all this, Jesus said, if you know the truth, it'll set you free. Well, if you let the Spirit move in your life, it'll show you the truth. Amen. the Bible was written to them for us, not for us to them. Right. But Great comments. We really, we really appreciate you, son, and we're really praying for you, and God bless you, my friend. Thank you, my brother. Thank you so much. God bless you. Okay. Bye-bye. We're going, uh, we're going to Mark in Meridian, Idaho. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, Sean. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, I had a question for you on the... Bible. It's not nothing to do with tonight's subject, but I was just curious if uh, Adam and Eve were the first two on this earth, and they had Abe and Cain. How did it go from there? The Bible doesn't really tell you about it. No, it doesn't. Presumably, uh, they had other daughters who their sons married. They had other daughters, their sons married, so that would be like incest? Yeah, but the, the, what, how it's explained, I don't know how to explain it, but how it's explained to me is that because there was no uh, generational intermixing and there was no pollutants and everything else, everything was pure, there would be no problem with that. It's today because we have uh, procreated with everybody on earth and we have all kinds of genetic things going on that when you do that and with pollutants and everything else, we come up with, three-eyed wigglies for children, but, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, bottom line, that's the only answer we could get, you know, unless they made it with animals, and I'm not, would never say that. So right, it has to right. be Adam and Eve had, or Adam and Eve have, had other children who bore other children, and then, because they lived so long, who bore other children, and then those met up, and I don't know. All right, all right. Yeah, okay, I don't know. and then after the flood... How did, what, does the Bible talk about how the, uh, all the races came about, like the black and the Mexican and the... Well, it talks about the Tower of Babel, and it talks about there being a division from that point forward, 
And so maybe from that, the nations uh, developed. And then due to environmental factors like heat and sun and, and cold and rain, we have different genetic characteristics with the Eskimos. And, the, and the, I don't know, but great questions. I've, great questions. I wish we knew. Uh, <coughs> but God doesn't tell us. I haven't read the Bible completely, so I'm just kind of going, wow, it doesn't really talk about it so far. Yeah, okay. it doesn't really talk about it ever. Doesn't it? Okay. Just, Caleb, just theory. <laughs> hey, Mark, thanks for watching. Okay. God bless. Bye-bye. Good, good word. All right. See ya. Bye. Hey, we're going to wrap it up with this. This is from uh, David N. He says, hey, Sean and Love, I want to ask you that if your ministry really begins to suffer and seems to be near death, would you possibly be open to the possibility that it's just because you are wrong? I mean, doesn't this seem to be I don't mean to be condescending, but I just want to know if you would be open to that and be willing to reconsider your position in light of it. Maybe your rejection of the Trinity and to a much lesser extent, hell has resulted in God withdrawing his blessing. Just something I'd like you to consider. I wrote him back and said, yes, uh, David, I ask myself that question almost every day. Uh, at, at, and the thought is quite typical of those who are spiritually minded uh, to perseverate over. We wonder, am I in God's will? Have things been difficult with us because I have failed and God is withholding his blessings? But then I added, but I wonder if the apostles wondered if they were being, when they were being tortured, I wonder if they thought the same thing. Or if Jesus, when he was being deserted by all, thought that. What we refer to as God's blessings in this world could also be nothing more than Satan's blessings too. When we think about it, I mean, the stones and Metallica seem to prosper, right? So in the end, all I can do is read the word, make sure I am being honest with what I think it says, do my best to understand it, and trust that the Holy Spirit is leading me. I did this with Born Again Mormon, and after much trial of faith, we were actually rewarded. I'm hoping that the ministry will turn out to follow in the same way. So it's a good question. You have to, you have to shine a light in your heart, and you have to say, am I on the right path? Why has it become so difficult? But you know, I was talking with Delaney, it, it's weird because it's not like God reward. That's a kind of a Mormon concept. If you're rewarded with a big church with many, many people flowing into it and lots of money and luxury, typically the Bible, the New Testament seems to say that's not what it's about. It's about being broken and weak things where God is glorified, not the strong. So I don't know what to tell you. I do take your question seriously, though. Finally, I'm finding it difficult to relate to the people in church as a preterist. I know if I was to tell people at my church that I believe Jesus came back in 70 AD, that they would be perplexed. Uh, I would say perplexed is a very kind word. Um, but just know, preterism, partial preterism or full preterism, which I am not full yet, I don't know, but I'm certainly partial, uh, is not a new thing. They're uh, from Origen, Eusebius, I think Eusebius, early church fathers, they taught this stuff. This stuff has been around. It's just, it's squelched by the powers that be. It gets crushed. And let me tell you something about the hope of his imminent return and looking for the Antichrist and being on our edge because he's coming, coming, coming. It keeps you in hyper mode. And it keeps you coming back to church and glomming on because you want to be ready. You want to be stoked up. You want to be prepared if he comes. I mean, you want to be sitting in church if he's coming back, right? So, so it plays to the hypersensitiveness of our spiritual natures to want to be ready. The, the, the deal is to be ready in your heart through love and faith and to be ready whether he's coming physically or whether he has come physically and you're going to die and meet him in a car accident tomorrow. Remember this. If you're a preterist or a futurist, we love you. We're, we aren't making things in stone. It's a subjective relationship. But let's just keep pursuing truth, see what we can find. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till the uh,